The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Well, you've probably heard a lot about inflation lately, and I know it sounds kind of wonky. It's something that um, you know belongs in the financial publications, but I do believe that it is a way that you can see almost everything going on in tech and the world beyond today. Um, and if you focus on it, you can end up learning a lot about our economy, where it's going, um, and it's probably also something that's relevant for you. It's about to be Thanksgiving. The price of a turkey is 14% higher this year than it has been before. And let's use the next few minutes to figure out why. We have two amazing guests joining us today. Uh, Ron John Roy, friend of the podcast. This is your third time back. Bring you on when the economy has gone nuts. But as you pointed out right before we hopped on, it's always been nuts. So at least since we've been friends. So anyway, nice to have you back, Ron John. Good to be back here. Okay. And we also have another great guest, Liz Young. She's the head of investment strategy at SoFi. Uh, Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here Um, and and been hoping to have you on for a while. So I think we found the right topic. So let's just dive right into it. My understanding and from a rudimentary way, this is the way that I explain this to myself, is the government has pumped trillions of dollars uh, into the economy and therefore money kind of lost its uh, attachment to reality and now everything is more expensive. Now, I know that's definitely missing a ton of the nuance and potentially wrong. So what is going on with inflation right now? We just saw the consumer price index go up by what, like 6.2%, which means everyone's salary is now worth only about like, you know, uh, 90 something percent of, of what it was before this happened. So, so what explains this? Yeah. I mean, I think when we look back, uh, even to the global financial crisis, I mean, we've had pretty easy monetary policy since then. And you would have expected if you looked at economic textbooks or anything that, that somebody would learn in school about economics, uh, you would have expected inflation to have picked up much sooner than, than it has. Um, but the reality is that it didn't, right? It was it was kind of dead in the water for a long time. So the argument about whether it's monetary policy and all of the liquidity that's been put into the system uh, driving inflation, I don't think that that's really it right now. I think that's part of uh, what might keep it elevated for a while. But what's actually happening is when you look at the goods economy, so basically the the stuff side of things instead of the services side of things, uh, the inflation is there. It's We're not seeing as much inflation in services right now. We're seeing all of the inflation in goods. Um, so it, it actually is supply chain related. And I know we continue to talk about that, but very much of it is supply chain related and related to demand that the consumer has finally come back online in a big way and is eager to spend. They've got all of this kind of pent up savings and they're finally deploying it. It's amazing that that's still going on. Like I'd imagine that that burst of spending would happen right as the pandemic uh, or vaccinations came online and people started to live their lives again. But 
the spending is way up, which is which is very interesting. Ranjan, you see this firsthand. Uh, you know, you're working. I, mean, I don't want to give it all away, but you're working in the direct to consumer space. You believe that the supply chain issue is is real. Tell me what it's like from your view on the ground. Yeah, I mean, focusing on there's the demand side of the equation, which clearly, you know, the influx of uh, money that's come in through the last year and a half is definitely going to kind of inject more demand for spending. But on the supply chain side too, we're seeing, you know, any number of factors, COVID-related port shutdowns, factory issues in China and Vietnam. So clearly the supply of goods that can actually reach America, the American consumer is going to be lower. So I think hitting it from both sides, it I mean, I think we are definitely getting hit from both sides. But then the big question is, you know, how can we try to manage this? Is there a policy related answer? Is it a monetary policy? Is it, you know, related to the Biden administration? Is there anything they can do? And, you know, the, the supply chain thing is is definitely worth touching on because from my understanding, so I actually was speaking to somebody I know who's working in shipping. And he told me that uh, it used to cost $2,000 to bring one uh, container from China to the United States. Now it's somewhere close to 14000 to bring that same container over. Uh, and that's because the whole shipping line, uh, shipping system shut down as the pandemic set in. Um, but then demand went way up and the shipping lines decided that, you know, they could, you know, potentially be a little slower bringing things on, back online. So the price for their services go up and they also just didn't have the capacity to bring everything on. So then all the shipping goods uh, end up, the, the shipping goods that are coming in from overseas end up being way more expensive. Uh, than they were beforehand. Um, so that would lead me to believe that, you know, this, the shipping system will eventually get back to where it was uh, and prices will come down again. And so maybe this is all just kind of a moment in time where uh, the prices, as Liz mentioned, uh, are going up because of what's happening in shipping. That will eventually fix itself and we will return to normal. What do you guys think about that hypothesis? If we're focusing on the supply side of this equation, the word transitory is clearly used on the monetary policy side regularly. But even for every business owner, for everyone involved in any kind of manufacturing or anywhere on the supply chain, that is the biggest question right now. Do we go back to quote unquote normal with normal being the state of affairs over the last 15 to 20 years? And and I do think that we might not. This idea that you know we have unfettered globalization and ships can move back and forth very easily and a container will always be $2,000 instead of $14,000. I do think that business owners will have to start thinking about, is this the way things are going to look in two, five, or 10 years? And that starts affecting their own manufacturing decisions, their own supply chain decisions, and especially in the near term, their own pricing decisions. And, and I mean, these are the conversations I'm having very regularly that if you start nearshoring more, does that increase kind of the intrinsic what, price? What's nearshoring? Uh, like not yeah, going nearshoring, overseas. Yeah, yeah, whether you bring manufacturing back onshore to the United States, if whether from like a tariff standpoint, from a general global trade standpoint, if these things are not going to quote unquote fix themselves and go back to the way they were five years ago, you have to start making other decisions. Anyone, anywhere selling anything, they have to start thinking differently. And it can potentially change the, I mean, the way you price goods 
can change in whatever your outlook is. It, I, that's an, it's an interesting hypothesis, right? To think about, will companies have to shift production? Will they have to change uh, the length of time it takes to get a widget from Asia to the United States, right? And, and the ways that you get things over here. I, I tend to, to almost disagree with it though. I think, um, I think it's a lot more difficult for companies to move production. I think it's, it's costly for them to change their entire production process and bring everything more onshore, especially because right now there's still such a big question mark about, you know, what if it does resolve itself, right? Because there's, there's so much cost savings for producing goods in different parts of the world that it might not be cheaper to bring it back here and just save on the transportation costs, right? Because you've got a lot of fixed costs that then turn into what are called sunk costs, right? So let's say they have to spend a lot of money just to move the production closer to home. They're not going to get that money back. And then they've got it here. And, and what if what if all the supply chain stuff resolves itself and they look at it in two years and say, well, that, that wasn't worth it, right? Yeah. And, and I'm going to throw out a idea here that it's not going to resolve itself. Um, that Liz, maybe as you're saying, companies won't want to move anything back because their operations are so dependent on having uh, manufacturing abroad. And everyone has gotten used, and by everyone, I mean the shipping lines and the companies. Companies are more profitable, actually, because they're able to charge higher higher rates and people are paying them. Um, everyone's gotten used to the idea that their higher prices are working for them and they're not going to be in a rush to go back. Like a shipping line isn't going to be like, well, I'm getting 14K for you know, uh, moving a container from China to the United States. Let me go back to two. That was better. No, they're going to keep the big, the big numbers. And so if inflation is actually here to stay, what happens? Uh, you know, are there policies, are there moves uh, that um, we can take or that the government can take that will bring this in line? What are the risks of that? Well, I do think inflation sticks around. I don't think it sticks around at 6%, uh, but I do think it stays higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, you know, we were running at somewhere between, let's call it 1.8 and 2.2% before the pandemic. Um, I think in order for it to be sticky, there are different parts of it. And I talked about this at the beginning of the show. There are parts of the services sector that need to um, see more inflation and not necessarily that I want them to see inflation, but that's the part that's sticky, right? It's the services side of it. It's so the it's housing like side of it, wages. Yeah. 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 Restaurants. Well, and interestingly, um, housing actually falls into that. Oh. I'm not sure how, but <laughs> it does somehow. Um, but I just read that housing prices are up 24.8% since last year. And, and that's a, that probably is a podcast for an, an entirely different time, but <laughs> Um, it's really okay, difficult to have measure housing. Yeah, it's it's difficult to measure housing in inflation because it doesn't actually directly go into it. It's there's right. there's a measure called owner's equivalent rent that sort of shows it, but you can see it in things like materials costs and you know building and and all of that. But yeah, okay. anyway, it's the services side that would cause it to be more sticky. Um, so you can you could see that happening in 2022, but also there's wage inflation. So you talked about consumers being willing to pay these prices. Uh, they're not going to be willing to pay them forever if they're making the same amount of money. So there has to be wage inflation that goes along with it so that they can absorb the higher costs. And 
we are seeing wage inflation right now, that's also something that would stay, um, that would keep inflation elevated. And then I guess the natural next question is how, what level do you see it staying elevated at? I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to be 6%, like I said, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it hover around two and a half, three percent for a while, maybe even above 3% for a while, mm-hmm. um, you know, through 2022. Supply chains, I think, fix some of the issue. But to your point, we're also sort of, it's like a fantasy that we're thinking, okay, we're going to go to sleep, you know, March 31st and wake up on April 1st and everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think that's the case. It's going to take a while. Yeah, I guess like, you know, even if their wages are going up a little bit, um, you know, Turkey, like I said at the top, now costs 14% more. And you'd imagine that um, people who make most of their money working jobs uh, versus investing are going to end up, you know, getting hit with the worst of this. So just to go back again to like who this hurts and and how the government might want to address it. Um, well, let me just ask that question. <laughs> Who does this hurt and how, how, do the, how would the government address it? And what are the ramifications of that? Ron, John? Yeah, I mean, in terms of who it hurts, that demand side of the equation and around inflation expectations, I'm going to be honest. I don't know what that looks like or feels like or what it means because I've never lived under that. And that's been one of the kind of weirdest things of trying to process all of this. Because again, there's this idea that, yes, okay, prices keep rising on the consumer side. Right now, if there is enough of a pool of money that people will continue to make those spending decisions and not cut back, maybe prices rise, but we don't see a slowdown in growth. And we hit some kind of unsteady equilibrium where everything still seems relatively okay and there's not some kind of like massive public backlash around it. But the idea that if prices keep rising, do I stop spending today? And how do I make those decisions at a kind of micro personal level is just something I've never had to think about in my life as a an adult consumer. You know, you read stories about the 70s, but how that starts to play out in terms of any kind of like inflationary expectations, I just can't even begin to perceive what that looks like. And and I think it presents a huge challenge for the government. I mean, one, on the monetary policy side, two, with the Build Back Better and Infrastructure Bill, which I do think can be argued it's disinflationary over the long term, I do think is already factored into whatever kind of inflation expectations the market is setting. So from a spending perspective, isn't necessarily the worst thing or going to you know, set off some inflationary spiral. But I think these are going to be very, very pressing issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. I, I mean, we're in this weird time too, where it's like, whose problem is it, right? Is it the government's problem? Is it the Fed's problem? Is it corporations' problem? Uh, I think we're going to find out in 2022 who who decides it's their problem to solve. Um, I don't know how it bakes through into consumer sentiment going forward, but I do think that some of the readings and, and when I say consumer sentiment, there's there's two different surveys that go out. There's one from uh, the conference board, and then there's one from the University of Michigan. And both of those readings, they're, they're basically surveys where they literally call consumers and ask them how they're feeling, right? This, it's all about their feelings. And it's how are you feeling right now? How are you feeling about the future? And both of those indexes have fallen in the last, let's call it four months or so, and they haven't really recovered yet. And it's this strange 
tug and pull because you look at things like retail sales that came in really strong last month. You you hear about uh, we heard a lot of corporate earnings this week from retail, and everything that we've heard is that the consumer is spending and and they seem happy. They're they're happily spending, right? But then you look at these consumer sentiment surveys and they've fallen and it doesn't add up. So I saw a note the other day that said an unhappy consumer continues to spend. And, and that's sort of what's going on. But I think what's hitting those sentiment surveys is a fear about inflation. And eventually that becomes an action about inflation, right? We talk mm. about it like uh, you vote with your feet uh, or you, you, you give your opinion with your feet. If you're a consumer and prices are too high, I mean, at what point do you start pulling back on that spending. I think I think you mentioned at the top that turkeys are how much more expensive this year? 14%. 14%. I think it's more than that, frankly. Mm. I I just bought one. I got it at Trader Joe's. <laughs> Anybody that wants to get a turkey go go to go to Trader Joe's because it was reasonably priced. But it's still more that, than 14. Jeez. <laughs> I well, yeah. no, it's funny. I before that I looked at I was at Whole Foods oh, okay. and I was trying to find, there was no turkey. I couldn't find any turkeys. So mm. then I went online and thought, okay, maybe I just have it delivered. They were over a hundred dollars if I wanted to Crazy. have it delivered. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot for a turkey. And then I thought, forget it. I'm not having turkey. I'll have ham for Thanksgiving. Right. So, but even just that thought process, I'm not the only person having those thoughts. So there's a substitution effect that starts to go on. And um, I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent here a little bit, but the last inflation reading, if you if you dig down into the details, which I'm sure most people don't or aren't interested in it, which is totally fine, but we need people like me who are interested and dig down into it. Frankfurters were actually down 3.3% last month. So if you're looking mm. for something to substitute in for the expensive turkey, Evidently, Frankfurters are are affordable. Sell hot dogs, buy turkeys <laughs> for trade. Mission hot dogs. We found it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, well, let me read the tweet from uh, Ed Snowden, because <laughs> I think that he like really nailed what's going on, which is that this is going to, you know, even if it's not immediately going to hit somebody in terms of what they can buy, uh, it is going to make a difference in terms of like, you know, their, the, the amount of money they have and what it can, what they can do with it. So he says, inflation hit 6.2%, wiping out the raises of those lucky enough to even have a good job. Parents are worried about the price of milk for their kids when the shelves aren't empty. And the establishment is like this. And this is the New York Times. Uh, he's quoting a tweet. Americans are by many measures in a better financial position than they have been in many years. They also believe the economy is in terrible shape. Why? So it's like, there's there's an immediate um, political ramification here. I think we're starting to see this reflect itself in terms of the uh, polling around Biden, what happened, what people are predicting with the midterms, which is that like people are feeling poor, um, and yet you know the establishment is uh, seeming to say there's there's no issue. So so um, and I guess people with equities are doing okay, right? If you if you own stock, you know the stock market is going up above what the inflation measures tell you. So you're you're you know in relatively better shape. Um, so I, I guess, I guess like, you know, what's going to happen there? Um, it, it, there's gotta be some ramifications, I think, as you both have pointed to, you know, if people are, are, you know, their wages aren't going up and, and they're, they're feeling like they have less money. 
Yeah, from the political side, obviously the biggest decision that's going to come up is does Powell get reappointed? Jerome Powell, the chair of the mm-hmm. Fed, get reappointed? And and Alex, we've been on, I've been on this podcast a number of times talking about my b- radicalized beliefs that zero interest rates drive a lot of the weirdness in the economy. And you want to just give I, like a sixty second summary of that because we have some new listeners on, and I'm sure they'd like to hear, even though it's tough to. Yeah, yeah basically the idea that. It's ultra low interest rates. The entire purpose of that kind of policy is to push more money into the economy and push people to take more risk to try to get the same yield. Again, if you're getting 0% in your checking account or like 0.1% in a savings account, then you go out and buy a yield farming DeFi product to give you 8% because that's a lot better. It makes people take more risk. It makes the economy a little weirder. And I think the Fed's impact on the economy and what monetary policy, how it does affect the economy is now a mainstream topic of conversation. It's something that everyone's thinking about. It's obviously kind of like front and center that we have 6% inflation. Will the Fed switch to actually hiking rates sooner than predicted? And, and now that's something everyone's thinking about. And again, the most basic kind of economic policy type action that can be taken is when you have high inflation, the Fed will hike rates to try to combat that. Um, but then there's the entire debate around, is should the Fed be keeping interest rates low to stabilize the labor market and try to push labor and jobs to where they were pre-pandemic? And I mean, we are right front and center in that question, and that's going to come up more and more in the weeks and months to come. And, and I think that that's going to be the most central question. It's become... Again, my mom asked me about like the Fed and interest mm-hmm. rates a couple of weeks ago. We had not talked about that in, I think, my entire life before. I do want to get into that um, when we come back from, from the break. So um, let's take a quick break and then come back here with Liz Young of SoFi, Ron Genroy of Margins, and talk a little bit about the Fed's role in all of this. And... Um, you know the the employment question in particular, I find fascinating because you know maybe they're all connected in a way that folks aren't really appreciating. All right, so let's take a break. We'll be back here in just a moment on the Big Technology Podcast. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back for our second segment here on the Big Technology Podcast. We're joined by Liz Young, the head of investment strategy at SoFi, Ron Genroy, the co-author of Margins. So Liz, actually, before the break, you mentioned that you know this might not actually uh, be a, a result of the way that the Fed is treating um, is treating the interest rate, and you, you know maybe a rate might not help what we're seeing. But do you think that there's still a chance that um, that the Fed will hike the rate, and, and what might go into its consideration on that? Well, first, let, let me clarify um, what I what I meant to say, and I, I may have misspoke. Is that I don't think that monetary policy is necessarily the main driver of inflation right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they hiked rates, that would change things. And Ranjan was talking about this before we went to break. 
so the idea of hiking rates is it's really multifaceted and there's a lot that we could say about this. Um, First and foremost, what I would say is that rates are at zero because we were past tense in an emergency situation Mm -hmm. as an economy. And I think it was absolutely necessary. I think that the Fed did the right thing by stimulating the economy, uh, stepping in into capital markets when they did, you know, when the pandemic hit in a big way and we needed that to happen. So that was not a mistake. Um, We in 2022, I think are going to start to see an environment where we're going to start to talk about the chance of a Fed mistake. And that's what scares the stock market is a Fed mistake. But I want to be very clear too. Well, that's the thing. I want to be very clear about what a what a mistake could be. A mistake could be in either direction, too hawkish or too dovish. And I think we're going to start to talk about that in the first half of 2022. And when I say hawkish or dovish, um, what that means just from a rate perspective, dovish would mean that they stay low. Hawkish would mean that they start to hike. Okay. So I, I don't know where the bird analogies came from. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make these up, but these are the rules. So anyway, doves and hawks. Right now, we're in a very dovish stance, and if rates stayed at zero, that would be about as dovish as it gets. And and we're also awaiting uh, an announcement of a nomination for the next Fed chair. Jerome Powell has been reasonably dovish. Um, the the other speculation is that Lael Brainerd would be the other nominee, and she is expected to be even more so dovish, right? Oh. But I think the conversation starts to be is is too dovish the mistake. And the markets are kind of flexing their muscles right now and saying that they expect to hike sooner. And I think, you know, when we get the next dot plot, which is another thing that we can explain later, when we get the next dot plot or the next Fed meeting in December, uh, we're going to see some yield curve volatility from that. And, and that's how inflation affects the stock market. Inflation affects the stock market because it affects the expectations for Fed rate hikes and when rates get hiked, the stock market does not like it. Right. And so the idea of keeping the rate low, folks have said, is that you want to get toward as close as you can toward full employment, labor force partic- participation rate. And so the idea might be that even if we are experiencing some inflation, the Fed might not want to step in and raise the rate because, um, because that might end up pull, you know, harming our uh our job recovery, even though the stock market right now and inflation have sort of gone kind of bananas. What do you think about that, Liz? Yeah, well, I mean, this is going to sound like a very simple statement, but the Fed knows this. Low rates don't create uh, jobs. Okay. So that that doesn't solve the problem. And I think there's been you know some messaging that we needed spending in Washington, we needed some fiscal spending that would create jobs, or they wanted to kind of hand that baton off and say, okay, we can, we can only do so much with monetary policy. Um, they, they can't pull jobs out of a, out of a rate hat. So when you look at what the fed tries to do, I think what they end up in right now is a little bit of a conundrum. They're kind of, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because part of the reason that you lower rates is you want to stimulate economic growth, which does create jobs, right? If economic growth is is effective at that, but they also need to control prices, right? Because that obviously affects the consumer. So I think what we're going to, what we're going to hear, what we're going to start seeing is not necessarily a pivot from the Fed, 
but we're going to hear that they are talking more about inflation than they were before. They're talking more about inflation being a decision factor than before, where leading up to this point, it was all about unemployment. It was all about jobs. And I still think that that's an important piece of it, but we already hit the unemployment rate that the Fed had projected by the end of the year. So that box started to get semi-checked, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think some of it is just a structural change in the economy. I don't think we're going to see a a labor force participation rate that goes back up to what it was before. So they're going to have to sort of readjust the position and say, you know what, maximum employment means something different than it did before the pandemic. Yeah, Ranjan, I'm going to... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Chime in. And then I have a follow up for you. I was going to say, so there's the kind of like conventional wisdom or just kind of theoretical certainty that low rates spur economic growth. But the looking at why that's the case, again, if there's more capital to be invested, to drive the economy, to build things, if a CFO of a company is sitting there doing a discounted cash flow analysis and trying to determine whether they should invest in a project and clear some hurdle rate, there is no shortage of capital in the economy. There's no short. No one is sitting there saying, I'm not going to invest in this project or I will invest in this project because of where the interest rate is right now. I mean, there's any number of stock buybacks, there's capital going into everywhere. So this idea that if we keep rates low, that will be the catalyst for spurring economic growth because there's more capital in the economy. I don't see that connection any longer or that anything has changed significantly in the last year. So I do think it's worth everyone just kind of stopping and asking themselves, yeah, why are rates still low? Is it just a kind of knee-jerk fear out of if we hike rates, that has always been bad and scares investors. So we do not want to do that, which is where I think we are right now. Yeah, I think I think that's totally fair. I think you just hit the nail on the head. Um, and, and I think companies will reinvest the capital and that's great for CapEx. And that's that's actually what we wanted companies to do after the global financial crisis with the capital that, that we gave them. When I say we, I, apparently I'm now part of the government. I'm speaking as if, <laughs> as if I gave them this money. I did nothing. Um, we, as the collective we, you know, gave corporations money. And what, what a lot of them did post-financial crisis was raise dividends and buy back stock right? They didn't necessarily reinvest in the company as much as we wanted them to. I think we do see a revival in CapEx in 2022, and that's definitely a healthy thing. Part of the other issue with the labor market is that there are plenty of jobs open, right? That There's no argument there. I mean, people are companies are trying to hire. It's just that the people who are unemployed don't want those jobs, aren't qualified for those jobs, and there's just not enough people. To go around. We had a bunch of early retirements. We had people leave the labor force. Uh, and there's been a shift in the economy, which I think, I think we're going to look back on this 10, 20 years from now and say, oh, that's what happened, right? The economy changed. We went into this pandemic. We, we were already obsessed with technology. Then it got to the point where we literally cannot live without it. And the economy changed. The companies that are going to survive and thrive changed. And the jobs around that also changed. And that's just that's just a simple fact. So if there isn't the right skill set, they can't fill the jobs. Yeah. So here's a weird theory. Um, people. So one of the hypotheses that uh, underscores this low labor rate, labor force participation rate 
is that a lot of people who've been part of this great resignation have seen that they could probably make more money in Bitcoin or in equities than going to their job and and actually um, making you know making a, a wage. And so by keeping the rate low, the Fed is encouraging this wildly speculative investment uh, environment. And maybe that can keep even more people out of work. Like, is there a way that, you know, potentially keeping the rate low is also keeping the labor force participation rate low because people have gone from, you know, working in a day job to, you know, day trading and are, are willing to take the risk because the upside in their mind might be higher. I know it's a crazy while, theory, but I'm curious while, what you think that. While I like crazy theories, I think attributing <laughs> it directly to crypto gains. I saw some survey that it was like four yeah. percent of people have resigned related to crypto making money in crypto. But but yeah. I, but I think whatever the reason for the Great Resignation, it's real. Everyone I know who runs a business, small business, medium, large business, it's such a huge issue. Yet. Again, you have this disconnect where the Fed and Jerome Powell is still saying we're trying to maximize uh, employment. We want to reach the number of jobs that we had pre-pandemic. Asking why are people resigning? I think it's not even necessarily the right question. It's that they are. And rather than trying to solve that, it's still just acknowledging exactly as Liz said, the economy has definitely changed and trying to like get to find the exact root cause. I think there's any number. Obviously, everyone was talking before that unemployment benefits could be contributing to that. As you just, your theory that uh, crypto gains could be contributing to that, stock market gains could be contributing to Mm -hmm. that. Any number of kind of additional government benefits like the 600 bucks a month in child credit could be contributing. Whatever it is, I do think people have more money and which gives them a bit or to makes them more empowered in making their decisions around labor. And I think that's a good thing. And I'm, I think that's overall good for the economy, at least in terms of the individual worker, but Mm -hmm. yeah, where that goes and trying to either both solve that, but also just recognizing that the fed is not going to create jobs. The fed is not going to keep a low rate and get us to full employment where it was pre pandemic, I think is the most important part of this. Yeah. And and I'm highly pro the great resignation. I think that that's great. Labor has like some power. And, you know, personally, um, I'll say I was a little bit ahead of the curve. I resigned, you know, in (laughs) in May 2020 before, you know, the summer's wave of resignation. We have a record like four million quits a month um, for a number of months straight. It's never happened. Well, okay, I don't know that the word resignation is entirely (laughs) accurate because right because, okay, you were ahead of the curve, but you're still here working. Right? Correct. So it's yeah, I'm in the labor force. Reshuffling. The great switch. Yeah, yeah. Or something. The the great, I changed my mind. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, some, somebody needs to come up with a better word than that. <laughs> but um, there definitely are people who quit and didn't go back to work. But I think it's also people just changing jobs. I changed jobs. I, mm-hmm. you know, I started at SoFi in March of this year. So I guess maybe that makes me part of the great resignation. But I took all of five business days off, right? <laughs> so, uh, th- there was, certainly wasn't a time where like we all left the labor force and just sat around and ate potato chips. And I, I think it's unfair to characterize all of it that way. But I also think, you know, as much as I think the crypto space is, is fascinating, I'm, I'm invested in crypto personally as well. So I believe in it as an asset class. Um, 
I don't think that it's a good plan to use that as your income and, and replace it with, you know, I guess, replace a job with your crypto investments. I I don't think that that's a good long-term plan. And I think that at some point people have to start working again um, or working in different ways. I don't know what that looks like. And and this is a whole nother debate too. Whose job is it to retrain the workforce, right? If that's actually the problem, if it's that we have this mismatch of skills, whose job is it to change the skills, yeah, I, I want to zero in on what I what I said a little bit, um, and I think this is interesting. Let's let this breathe a little bit. Um, so, in in terms of like the Great Resignation, I agree, probably a misnomer, but we also have labor force participation rates that are much lower than they've been before, or at least lower. Maybe much is a bit of an exaggeration. The other thing is, in terms of taking the crypto winnings and walking away from the game, um, I think it might be less of that and more of Someone sees that wages have been stagnant for years and years and years, and you know their three percent raise in their job is not outpacing inflation, and they see the gains to be had in investing in the equity market, you know, are much are much stronger. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that like you're going to end up like investing in the S and P and never working again, but it might mean you're a little bit more hesitant to take a job, knowing you know what the output of your labor is compared to the output of your investing dollars. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. I, I think it's fair to say that if you both factor in just for a number of months, you couldn't spend on anything other than ordering, you know, like some random thing on Amazon. It, people saved money. People were given more money. People have accumulated more money via investments, or they're seeing that you can accumulate more money. Of course, when you get to that personal level of, do I want to go back to some job I don't like, it's going to be a factor, Mm -hmm. especially for employers that created environments that were not great for working. Of course, every single one of those people now has a bit more power to say, I do not want to take that job. And yeah, like as Liz was saying, I think not to get into a whole, what does the future of work uh, conversation look like? I think just at in terms of kind of what the economy is looking right now, it, it's a really, really interesting time. And I think these are all huge factors. And again, as Liz said, I really like that, that we're going to look back years from now and be like, oh, that's what happened. And it, yeah, it's well, happening and, right now. And I don't want to make light of of anything that we've been through in the last two years, but it's, it is actually kind of funny to think about, you know, we all got locked in our houses and we were left to our own devices. We were alone with our thoughts more than we've ever been alone with our thoughts. And I think we all pondered, <laughs> what am I contributing to the world, right? What, what's it all for? And what do I really want to do? What's my purpose? And that's where part of the resignations came from, right? We all sat around and thought, like you said, do I want to go back to that job? And you know, I mean, I'll be honest, from a personal level, I, in my last job, I was traveling a lot hmm. and I loved it for a long time, but I did what was it your last for, job? for five years. Um, I was an investment strategist at the Bank of New York. Hmm. So similar, right? Similar role, but I was client facing. Uh, so I did a lot of traveling and I met with clients and I spoke at a lot of conferences, but I mean, traveling for, it was five years straight. And then suddenly I was locked in my apartment. Um, which at first seemed great because I had time to like watch TV shows and stuff, but Mm -hmm. eventually I got antsy, but either way, Mm -hmm. the the travel lifestyle, it did start to wear on me. And I, you have to think about that and and sit back. And once I finally 
had time to slow down and be home, I wondered the same thing, right? Can I go back to that lifestyle? Do I even want to go back to that lifestyle? I mean, I was, I was wheels up every week and I make this joke all the time. I made diamond on Delta without the credit card. Like I actually flew <laughs> all the miles. That takes work. Yeah. It it does take work. And you know, I did it at the right time because now yeah. I get I get free diamond status for like two or three years because of all the extensions. But um anyway, you know, I went through the same thing where it was like, I don't I don't know that I want to go back to that. And I think it gave a lot of people an opportunity to examine that and maybe um even, you know, ask for a little bit of a different lifestyle or make a decision that they wanted a different lifestyle. And that's that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. And, and w- just to build on that, we started this conversation about will the economy go back to normal as it was before? And th- that's like a perfect example. Business travel, I don't think it's going to look exactly like it did before. I don't think it's going away, but clearly, and the taking a flight every week, once you realize that maybe it's not necessary, people will cut back on and that will change certain parts of the economy. Airlines will be affected and maybe that money gets shifted into the metaverse meeting rooms or whatever. But but I, I definitely think this idea that we go back to exactly the way things were uh, pre-pandemic, is it's, it's impossible. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I will say though, I, I just took my first business trip a couple of weeks ago out to our headquarters in San Francisco and, and I got to see our stadium in LA and it felt good to be out on the road again. It felt good to connect with people. It felt good to have business conversations face to face. It felt good to you know be around my boss in person. I mean, that that hadn't happened in so long. So I think people will start to do it again and, and realize that there's no replacement for face-to-face and in-person communication, but we now have another option, right? We have conferences that will happen in person, but there's probably going to be a virtual option as well. Yeah. And I that's think, just something that's oh, sorry. different. Go ahead. I think Delta was saying, <laughs> giving some line where they think business travel is actually going to increase because now you can go on business trips and still zoom in back to headquarters and you won't miss a meeting, <laughs> which I thought was... So ridiculous, but it is optimistic. nice. Optimistic. I mean, hold it's true. It, well, I mean, it's true. It is yeah. true, but it's just, I don't think that's going to be enough to buoy business travel. But I will say, I just did like four conferences and somehow didn't walk out with a breakthrough infection from COVID. And it was so amazing. Like it just, the adrenaline of just like seeing people in person um, yeah. was terrific. And you just, you remember how great it is, um, you know, because you appreciate it more now that, you know, you've, we've all endured year and a half or whatever, depending on where you live, but something like that locked, locked at home in some shape or form. Absolutely. I I think, I mean, it's, it's also been a lesson in uh, how to to socialize again, right? It's like, we all went back out into the world and nobody knows how to behave. You go into a restaurant, everybody's (laughs) talking louder than they used to. And, um, but I think it's great. I think we're all around each other again and, and we're really enjoying it. I mean, I was at a, a business dinner last night and we just, we couldn't stop talking about how great it was to be together. And -hmm. it was, you know, a group of people that hadn't seen each other in a long time, all in one place. And it really, it was almost heartwarming, right? To be around each other again and have conversations in person. Liz Young and Ron John Roy are with us. They're two of my favorite voices on the financial system and tech in general. Uh, It's great to have them here. We're going to take one more break and then be back for a short segment talking a little bit about uh, market craziness, which is um, one of my favorite things to talk about whenever I'm anywhere near Ron John. So we'll have to do a little bit more of that. We'll be back right after this. 
From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here on the Big Technology Podcast for one quick final segment. We're talking with Ron John Roy. He's the co-author of Margins, a newsletter on on Substack. Uh, You most definitely should sign up for. Liz Young is also here. She's the head of investment strategy at SoFi. Liz, where can people find um, the stuff that you put out? Well, first, first you can find me on Twitter at Liz Young Strat. I tweet pretty often. I try to I try to go light on Fridays, but um, <laughs> I tweet pretty often. Yeah. So follow me on Twitter. I also post uh, all of the articles that I write on there as well. So you'd get alerted, but we also have a blog. So if you go to SoFi.com, you can find our blog there and there's an investment strategy section. So anything I write would show up there. And I also have a podcast. Um, oh, down it out as well. It's called The Important Part. Mm-hmm. And you can find it literally anywhere uh, that podcasts are available. So The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young, and I'm dropping a new episode this coming Tuesday, the 23rd. Looking forward to it. So, And you're both also on CNBC. Actually, like the three of us are on CNBC um, every now and again. And Liz, I was actually watching one of your appearances recently where you talked about how the market is being bolstered by the exuberance of younger investors who are just plowing their money into it. So um, obviously the market's been on an insane run recently. You can, you know, you can chuck it up to zero interest rate policy, or maybe people are hedging against inflation, or maybe it is just the younger folks are, uh, are now going diving in head first. Um, So, so, I mean, the question of whether this is good has been talked about ad nauseum with the Robin hood stuff, but does this change the way the market works? Um, and, and is this period of um, you know, exuberance going to come to an end at some point? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's great. I, I don't think mm-hmm. that's a question at all. I think yeah. it's great that there are- I'm on board. I'm on board with yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. That, there, <laughs> that there are new people in the market, that there are uh, investors getting started earlier in life um, and young or old. I don't, I don't care how old they are, right? It, just new to investing. I think it's absolutely- Amazing, um, because for such a long time, I know that there were many people out there that thought the stock market was um, a club for Wall Street, right? Or or didn't understand it enough to get started. And I think that this has brought the intimidation factor down considerably. And I think that's really important. It's how we build financial freedom. It's how we build financial futures, uh, and how we get excited about 
being involved in the market at all and, and learning about it all. Where I think it becomes an issue is the next time the business cycle turns, mm-hmm. because that's just a nature of the beast. At some point, we will have another recession. Shortly thereafter, we will have another recovery, right? That's just how this works. Now, none of us know when that's going to happen. We don't know when the next big pullback is going to be. We don't know when uh, the next bear market is going to be. And for for the listeners, I just want to define terms really quickly. A correction, when you hear about a correction, that generally means about 10% drawdown. A bear market is 20% or more. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that, right? And And if you're a newer investor that came in after the pandemic, so we'll call it post-market bottom, which was March 23rd, 2020. So if you came in post-market bottom, you haven't seen a broad pullback. There's certainly been pullbacks in, in certain stocks uh, of more than 20%, but a broad market pullback hasn't happened. So I think that's where the problem comes in. When that actually occurs, You know, are we giving enough education about how to deal with that? Are we, are we showing people how to be patient through it? Are we showing them how to have a diversified portfolio so that they don't participate in that entire drawdown? And not only that, the, um, they've helped drive the market to such crazy, such a uh, crazy situation that it might even hurt more than usual. Although maybe, maybe I'm being dramatic. No, no, I, 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 w- I would time. actually take the other side of that argument yeah, and say good, good. the what we call the democratization of finance over the last year and a half or so is not necessarily a good thing. More because. And again, my background, I worked at a bank in trading for a number of years and left and have been in media for the past decade. But the questions I get, the statements I get from friends who have only recently entered the market are terrifying. I mean, even mm. just like the idea that, oh, like 15% is normal, 20% is normal. I'm going to have this for the rest of my life. I'm going to, I just calculated that I could retire in the next five <laughs> years. I mean, d- being explained yield farming by people who just are entering crypto like two weeks ago. I mean, these things. And the you the thing that actually worries me even more is companies now are targeting this type of investor. The way even, especially like direct-to-consumer firms, you see when they're IPOing are creating entire marketing campaigns targeting retail investors, not just trying to sell their products. One, this stuff is not even remotely regulated as a financial communication. It's still a marketing communication. But you see, everyone realizes there's this pool of hungry money just that will go in any direction that is it's being told to whatever is kind of trending on Twitter if Elon Musk tweets about Dogecoin. And, and I really worry about what that sets people up for for the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. If this is what they look at the financial market to be, and then in a year or two from now, if that's not the case, are you completely disillusioned? Or th- I mean, the, the likelihood that you stop, take a deep breath after a big hit and say, all right, now I want to learn about building a diversified portfolio and investing for the long term. I, I, I think it goes even more the other way. I, and I just want to throw one thing out there before I, you know, to, to add, before we go to final thoughts, um, Rivian, which automotive company that hardly makes any vehicles, has a $118 billion market cap. That's wild, right? Yeah. So, so Liz, your your final wild, here. not 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 good or bad, but um, <laughs> why? I don't see how that could be good, but it's way. fun. It's fun. Well, you know, there's yeah. anyway. I, I'm not. I can't talk about individual yeah. companies, so I'm just going right. to pivot and save myself. Um, so <laughs> okay. Yeah. Final thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. I I agree with Ranjan. I'm going to go with fifty fifty on 
yes, it's a risk that this is how people are, are in the market now, and maybe they're not doing the same type of research and they're not building a diversified portfolio. I think, I think the, the bigger risk is that diversification piece. Um, but the idea that, that people are in it and it's because of social media or it's because of, you know, the meme stock craze, the market doesn't get to discriminate and say, you know what, you bought this stock for the wrong reason. So you don't get to have the gain, right? Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. It's you, you can buy it for whatever reason you want. You could buy it because you like the ticker symbol, right? Um, and it doesn't matter. You still get to have the gain just like everybody else did. So I don't know that, that it really, it matters why people got in, how they got in. I think that it's a responsibility of people like us to marry that, marry their enthusiasm with some of the timeless principles that we know, right, about diversification and some of the things that we've learned in living through those downturns. And if we can, if we can take their enthusiasm and put it together with some of those timeless investing principles, I think that is a recipe for success. Ranja, 30 yeah, seconds. I, I, <laughs> I, that was a very optimistic scenario, Liz. And I, trust me, I am regularly trying to marry the enthusiasm of mm -hmm. today's investors with, uh, with timeless principles. But, but I, I think, again, e even going back to the Fed decision, the thing that worries me is this idea that a 25 basis point hike coming sooner rather than later is a terrifying thing. It should not be a terrifying thing. It should be a boring thing that happens by decided by a bunch of economists, you know, and uh, no one really pays that much attention to because it's just this small economic cog in the larger wheel. Yet everyone is sitting here and all these exact kind of elements of this recipe have to be in place for us to be where we are today. And if any of them change, then everyone is terrified about what can happen. I think again, but, but I always say this and I've been saying this the last couple of times I've been on mm -hmm. and it's been over yeah. a year. Mm -hmm. uh, every day it feels like the, the drawdown is around the corner and then things <laughs> only get weirder the next day and the day after that. So, so I, I'm, I, I sit back and try to have fun. Uh, watching the weirdness and indeed there's going to be way more to come inflation is up the podcast remains the same cost it's free thank you for listening <laughs> thank you liz young of sofi thank you ron john roy of the margins really appreciate you both joining here uh, to talk about this pressing issue thanks to nate gawatney who edits the show makes it sound good uh red circle for hosting and selling to ads and once again to all the listeners have a great thanksgiving uh, to those of you that celebrate, and we'll be back here next week on our typical time on Wednesday, and looking forward to seeing you then. Take care.